Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather together and to study your goodness and your greatness in the story of the Exodus. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes for what you have for us here today. We pray that you would speak through Jenna as she shares uh, and as she teaches us through these uh, first uh, chapter of Exodus. I pray that you would uh, just bless her. I pray that you would bless our time together. I pray that you would uh, be honored with our time and our discussion. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning. Good to see you all today. It's good to be gathered together like this. Um, as we sang this morning about how great is our God, I hope that you were thinking back to your homework this week and remembering just some of the things that you read about of God's goodness and his greatness, because I think that is certainly on display here this week of God's greatness in the way that he was orchestrating things even when it couldn't really be seen by the people of Israel. Um, I hope that you were blessed by your time and your homework this week. Um, I heard from many of you throughout the week that you were enjoying that time, and so I hope that you did. Um, for those of you who are new, welcome. We're glad to have you jumping in. This is an awesome time to be jumping in, and your group leaders will spend some time today helping you to figure out what homework looks like so that next week when you join in, you'll be ready to go. Um, but as we gather here today, if you remember, we had talked about the fact that we're assuming assuming that you have firsthand knowledge of the text. And so as I teach today, the purpose of this teaching time is just to take what we learned and what we studied during the week through our homework and just take a deeper dive into it. Um, I'm assuming you're coming with firsthand knowledge of the text, for those of you who did homework this week, that you have spent time reading Exodus, digging into it, that you've wrestled with some questions. I hope you have. I wrestled with some questions this week. Um, and that you're coming here with some opinions and thoughts of your own. And so if, as I'm going through this teaching, if you go back to your small group and maybe you feel some tension of like, I don't really agree with that, or I, I would have taken it a different direction, that's okay, that's good. That means you were a good scholar this week, and we're glad for that. As a reminder, this is kind of an interactive thing here. We're all learning together. And so when Jason and I stand up to teach, we're not doing here, we're not going to do that with the authority of this is the only opinion that matters. I encourage you that if you have some things you're still wrestling with after today, that you go home and then you take that time to dig into your study, um, study guides and your commentaries and your study Bibles and you look a little deeper into things because there are lots of different views and opinions out there, and that's a good thing to do as a scholar of the Bible. Uh, we talked last week that Moses is the one who is given authorship of the book of Exodus. In fact, he's given authorship of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, and as Moses begins to write the book of Exodus... He is making an assumption. He is assuming that we read what just came, which is the book of Genesis. So he is starting with that assumption. And actually, in the Hebrew language, there's a really important word that comes at the beginning of verse 1 that we don't have. And that's the word and. Okay? So I have a almost three-year-old, almost three-year-old daughter. She would tell you she is two and a half. Um, she likes to use the word because. 
all the time. It's like her new thing. And she doesn't say because, she says because. Everything is because, and it makes no sense. So it, her name's Lydia, and Lydia will say to me, we'll be eating dinner, and she'll say, because I need a drink of water. But nothing came before. She's missing another sentence. Or she'll say, like, we'll be in the car, and she'll say, because I want to listen to Moana instead. And we all kind of look at her like, okay, <laughs> is there another sentence before that test should have came? Well, Moses is using the word and correctly because we know that and is a conjunction, just like because is a conjunction. Lydia is not using it right because there's nothing that came before. But when Moses uses that word and, it's an important word because he is telling us that there is important information that just came before. And so when we read and interpret the book of Exodus, we have to do it with knowledge of what just happened. We can't read Exodus as a standalone book. And so we're also going to see as we read Exodus that there's language throughout Exodus that will remind us of Genesis. So with that in mind, I just want to spend a few moments thinking back to this book of Genesis. Some of you studied Genesis with us a few years ago. Uh, maybe some of you have read this book. Maybe for some of you, you have not spent time in this book. So this is just kind of a brief overview of some of the important things that happened in Genesis that are going to have an impact on what we read moving forward. So if you remember in Genesis, Abraham is chosen by God to be a father of a new nation. In fact, um, Abraham is given two main promises, and we talked about this last week. He has promised a people and a place. In fact, not just a, just not like a people, not a small people. He's, in, he's promised a nation that is going to be as numerous as the stars. And this place is a promised land. And so this promise really drives a lot of the narrative of Genesis. And if you remember, it was a promise that was threatened several times. It's threatened when Abraham continues to advance in age and he still doesn't have a son. It's threatened again when Abraham finally receives a son and then God asks him to sacrifice it. And then it's also threatened again when there is a famine on the land and the people of Israel are threatened with starvation. And yet in each of these instances, God provided for his people. And at the end of Genesis, we see that Joseph brings his family to Egypt, and it's through Joseph that this family of Israel, or Jacob's family, is saved from the famine and able to continue living. And that's where we're going to pick up today. In fact, the first nine words that we're going to read today are actually an exact repetition of Genesis 46, 8. So we're going to be digging into the text today. I encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, that you open up to Exodus, because we're going to go line by line through the text. You could also open it up in your Bible app. I'm going to be reading in the ESV version, um, so you might have a different version on you. That's okay. There is also space in your study guides. If you want to take notes during this, you can. Maybe you're just a listener, and that's fine too. But if you want to take notes, there is space after your week two homework where you can take notes. So we're going to dive right in, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So this number 70 here doesn't necessarily mean exactly 70 people. It could. But remember, we talked last week that this is historical narrative. 
okay? We like to concentrate on the history part of it, and we think these are recorded facts. And yes, there are recorded facts in this. There is history, but this is also narrative. And so sometimes we're not quite sure if it is exactly 70 people or maybe Moses is trying to tell us something more here. Remember that this is a narrative and Moses is telling a story. He has a particular theme that he wants to make sure that these people understand. He's reminding them of who they are as God's people. So more likely this is a symbolic number because 7 and 10 are both numbers of completeness. So seven times 10, completeness times completeness. In short, Moses is telling his people, hey, the, the complete number of people that God wanted to be in Egypt were there. It is a reminder for us of God's sovereignty that he has ordained for these people to be in Egypt. We're gonna continue on in the text in verse six. Then Joseph, Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In your homework, you noted that there was a lot of fruitfulness language throughout this text. And we see that here with these words like multiplied and grew and filled. And notice that, that line, fruitful and increased greatly. Fruitful and increase greatly. Where have we heard that phrase before? Anyone? Say with confidence. It is in Genesis, right? Right? They were given a command to be fruitful and multiply. And so we're seeing here that they are. This fruitfulness language, this creation story or this theme of creation is not just confined to the opening chapters of Genesis. It starts with Adam and Eve, but we see that God is constantly working and recreating his world. We see it with the recreation of the world through Noah. It's here with the creation of this nation, the birthing of the nation of Israel. We see a new birth and a new creation when we become believers of Jesus. And finally, with the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, they will be a new creation then. And so we remember here, and we are brought, is brought to our attention that God is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. He is creating a nation. And remember, we talked last week that Exodus is a birth narrative. And so we see that there is a nation that is being formed here. But as we're going to continue to read, we're going to see that once again, the fulfillment of this promise is under threat. In verse 8, we'll continue. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I want to pause there for a second because that might seem kind of funny to us, right? Now, we have a rapidly growing nation. We've been told several times, we hear this language that it's multiplying, it's growing, they're filling the area. So it's probably not accurate that Pharaoh didn't actually know who Joseph was. As we're going to see, Pharaoh's going to become quite obsessed with this rapidly growing nation. And so I think we can assume that he probably knew the origin of this nation. What is more likely is that he didn't have reverence or respect for Joseph and what he had done for Egypt in the past. He's no longer going to uphold the promises that were made with past Pharaohs. Continuing in 9. And he said, Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We have some more Genesis language here. 
Do you recognize that phrase, come let us? It is the same phrase that the builders in the Tower of Babel used in another scenario when people tried to go against God's sovereign plan and take matters into their own hands. This should indicate to us, and it definitely would have indicated to the original audience who was familiar with this story, that, hey, Pharaoh's trying to take control here. And notice the word that is used to describe how Pharaoh wants to act. He wants to act shrewdly. Maybe some of you have the word cunning in your translation. Who else have we just heard, thinking back to Genesis, as being described as shrewd or cunning? The serpent. So right away, right away, the original audience would have heard that and thought evil. And we're meant to make that association too. So we see there's a tension here between God's promise to multiply his people, give them a promised land, and the evil that is trying to stop it. And the question immediately would have become, what's going to win, God's promise or evil? And we see here that Pharaoh has a fear that's going to drive him to three action steps here in just a moment as he's going to try to eliminate and control this growing Israelite population. And notice again, we still have this fruitfulness language, many, mighty, multiply. His fear is that this population is going to join enemies and fight against him. And this is really a very legitimate fear because if you know the history of this nation, you remember that when Joseph brought his family, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of that time told, that, told Joseph that they could settle in the land of Goshen and that's where they would live. And so they weren't living with the rest of the Egyptians. They were, far, they were kind of far off and set aside and they were in the north, the northern part of Egypt. And so they were right along the border in the north. And so as Pharaoh watches this population continue to grow and they have their own culture and their own people, it would make sense for him to have this fear of, hey, they could easily break off and join our enemies. They are a threat. And so he is going to become very calculated and shrewd in how he deals with this threat. So we're going to look here in verse 11 at the very first attempt that Pharaoh's going to make at controlling this growing population. In verse 11, it says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses, but the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this is Pharaoh's first plan, and it's logically, it's a good one. Again, it makes sense. Pharaoh has this rapidly growing population, so what does he do to try to decrease the population? He's gonna take the men in that area and ship them off somewhere else to be slaves. Python and Ramesses were cities that were not in Goshen, and so these men would have been gone for months at a time, most likely, to be slaves and to work. And so that would have made procreation a lot more difficult. Secondly, the other reason why it's going to probably affect the Israelite population, or it should, is because this area, the, the Israelites were an agrarian society. They relied on agriculture. And now all of a sudden, half of your workforce is gone as slaves. And so starvation becomes a real threat. And not only that, we just, um, we're going to see here in a minute that the slave labor was not easy. It was brutal and it was hard. And so there would have been physical effects on the men as well, possibly even death. And so it logically makes sense as Pharaoh makes these plans that we're going to see a decrease in the population, but that's not what we see, is it? 
If you look at verse 9 and 10, we see, or if we look at verse 10, we see that Pharaoh wants to deal shrewdly with them because he's worried that they'll multiply. And then you look at verse 12. What does it say? The more that they were oppressed, the more they what? The more they multiplied. But God, it doesn't matter what Pharaoh's plans are. Pharaoh decides to deal harshly with them, but the opposite occurs. Instead of decreasing the population, they multiply and spread. Even as Pharaoh attempts to manipulate and control, God's will cannot be stopped. Let's look in verse 13. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. For me, it can be easy to kind of skip past these verses here and move on and not really feel the weight or tension here because we know the end. We know that deliverance is near. We know the end of this story. But notice those words, ruthless, bitter. This was hard, brutal, devastating slavery. And we can often read this without maybe taking the time to sit in the pain and tension that the original audience would have felt. But when we started reading this this morning, we saw that we, there were 70 people who came to Egypt. And we noted that that number probably doesn't mean exactly 70, but it instead emphasizes the fact that the exact number of people that God wanted to be in Egypt were there. And so we see that God has ordained these people to be in Egypt. They are a chosen people. They have been given a divine promise by God. They were given divine protection from him during a famine. And yet here they are, as they wait for God to intervene, they are sitting here and suffering. There are some parallels here to our own lives, aren't there? Because we're also a chosen people. We've also been given a divine promise by God, and we are also awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. And like the Israelites, we are also not immune to suffering as we wait. We often ask the question, where is God in our suffering? And I have to think that the Israelites had to be feeling that same thing. They had to be wrestling with that same question that we often wrestle. They had to be asking questions like, why would God bring us down here to Egypt just so that we could be enslaved? Or why is God continuing to grow our population when it's that population growth that is the cause of our persecution? We are meant to feel the tension here, often, just like we often feel tension in our own lives. This population growth, this multiplying, was a blessing from God. It was a faithful, faithful fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. But it's also the source of their suffering. The more that they multiply, the more they are becoming oppressed. In a fallen world, the blessings of God are often in conflict with the values of the world around us. I'm going to say that again. In a fallen world, the blessings of God are often in conflict with the values of the world around us. Jesus is the purest example of this. He was the epitome of goodness, and yet God sent his beloved son, knowing with certainty that he was going to be put to death by people who thought that they were doing the world a favor. And so Moses is drawing our attention to this rapidly growing population so that we can feel the tension here. 
He's showing us that this is a blessing from God. But it's also the cause of suffering because of the responses of evil people. Let's continue on here in verse 15 and look at Pharaoh's second attempt that he's going to make to control this rapidly growing population. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. So in short, Pharaoh is coming to these midwives and saying, hey, I'm going to have you deal with this, right? Pharaoh doesn't want to deal with it himself. Um, and he's asking them to discreetly kill the male babies. Uh, most likely, he's probably trying to say, hey, make it look like an accident. Those happen in birth, right? And so we notice, I think it's also important to notice Pharaoh's orders. Who is seen as the threat? The men, right? Kill the men. The men are the concern. The daughters aren't of any concern. But again, Pharaoh shrewdly knows that if he deals with the male population, that that's going to have a direct effect in this time period on the female population as well. But we're going to see as we read on how God's will will not be stopped. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. These midwives feared what God would do to them after death far more than they cared about the physical death that Pharaoh could certainly have given them. In your homework this week, you were asked to wrestle with the question, is it ever okay to lie? Um, and here we see these midwives commended by God for their faith. In fact, you saw in your homework that they were given names. And who is not given a name? You remember? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. But these midwives are given a name. And there's another woman in scripture who is named and memorialized for her faith, and I think her story is important and will help us. Um, it's Mary Magdalene. When she anoints Jesus with oil before his death, she shows an understanding of what's happening. In faith, she anoints him, and he says these words. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done in faith will also be told in memory of her. Mary's faith in stepping forward and anointing Jesus earns her a special place in the gospel story. And we see other examples of this as well. In fact, two other examples of women who lied and are given names, Tamar, Rahab. Their stories are preserved in scripture. And this, these midwives, their faith in protecting the Israelites also earns them a special place in this story. So is it ever okay to lie? Well, I, I think in this case, yes. When they are faced with either lying or preserving life, they take the higher concern. This isn't just telling a white lie to protect somebody's feelings. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about fearing God and choosing to uphold the sanctity of life. Pharaoh is going to continue here in verse 22 with his last attempt here at dealing with this growing population. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we see here that Pharaoh is no longer going to make this look like an accident. This is now outright murder. Um, but he's still trying to shift responsibility here a little bit because the Nile in this time period to the Egyptians was considered a god. And so Pharaoh's essentially saying like, hey, we're going to put the Hebrew baby boys in here and they're going to be in the hands of the Nile. The Nile will choose whether they live or die. And so we see that this river, which is supposed to be a source of life for the Egyptians, is now being used as an instrument of death. And this isn't going to be the last time in this narrative that we're going to see a body of water associated with death. But the next time that we do, the tables are going to be turned, and it's not going to be the Egyptian men who are facing death, but it will be, I'm sorry, it's not going to be the Hebrew men who are facing death, but it will be the Egyptian men who are facing death in water. And again, in this passage, we see this idea that the daughters are of no concern but as we enter into chapter 2, I want you to pay particular attention to the emphasis that Moses is going to make here on, on women. And you saw this in your homework. In fact, we're going to see that there are 16 different nouns in here referring to women in just 10 verses. So let's go ahead and dig into chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, for, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So Moses is sure to start off this section with noting the lineage of his parents. And you might think, like, why is that important? Well, it was from the house of Levi that we are going to eventually see that priests come from. The spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel are going to come from the house of Levi. Now, that hasn't even happened yet, but it's almost like Moses is saying, hey, I'm pre-qualified for the role that God's going to give me. I come from the house of Levi. And as we read this narrative about Moses and his mother and the great lengths that she goes through to protect and conceal him, I think we could maybe fall into the trap of thinking like, wow, Moses' mother is like particularly smart. Or maybe she just loved her child way more than the other Hebrew women. But what mother willingly hands her child over to death? I think it's probably much more likely that this is something that was being done by a lot, if not maybe all, of the Hebrew women. We mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning that Goshen was no located toward the north of Egypt and it was removed, they were removed as a nation from the rest of the Egyptians and separated. And so it's probably pretty likely that the Egyptians did periodic raids of Goshen and they would check for any new male babies born during the time that they had been absent. And so it's probably likely and I think supported by this text, especially because Moses' sister knew what she, what she was supposed to do, didn't she? There was a plan here that this was probably the plan that the Hebrews had. There was probably an alert system. Hey, the Egyptians are coming. And so we see this here, that they jump into action. Moses says that his mother places him in a basket. And that word basket, the Hebrew word that Moses, is used, Moses uses here, is the same word that is used for ark. And so once again, Moses is bringing us back to the story of Genesis, to another narrative, another creation narrative. 
And he's showing us that, hey, just like God delivered, delivered Noah through the ark, through the waters of death, and started a new creation through him, I'm also going to be delivered through the waters of death, and a new nation is going to be delivered through him. And so we see this parallel between the two stories. Continuing in verse 5, and continuing to pay attention as I read to these female references. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the child was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So as Pharaoh continues to see God's blessing as evil, we see here that Pharaoh can take any and all powers of the enemy and subject them to his will, even Pharaoh's own daughter. This is a member of Pharaoh's very own household. Continuing in verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses' name means to draw out, and Pharaoh's daughter names him that quite simply because she brings him out of the water. But God knows that Moses is going to be the one who draws the people out of Egypt. And far from being killed by Pharaoh and his royal household, Moses, this deliverer, is going to emerge from Pharaoh's own house. There's so much irony here, isn't there? God, Pharaoh said that daughters are of no concern. You remember that. Kill the males, but let the daughters live. He said it two times. But we see here that God chose five women, two midwives, a mother, a sister, and, his very own and Pharaoh's very own daughter to be female deliverers. God often chooses the unexpected and people that maybe would be viewed as society as weak to be the vessels through whom he delivers. We see this a lot in scripture. We see this when Jacob was chosen over Esau, the younger son and not the older we see this in the story of David when the youngest and smallest of all the brothers is chosen to be king. And finally, we see this in Jesus who did not look or behave the way in which a savior was expected to. Last week, Jason kind of gave us a really nice summary of the themes of the book of Exodus. He said this, he says, in Exodus, we encounter the personal God who remembers his promises and delivers his people. I'll say that again. In Exodus, we encounter the personal God who remembers his promises and delivers his people. I hope that you've heard those themes through this opening chapter today. God's people are groaning in this chapter under the weight of oppression, and yet in the midst of slavery, death, and grief, God is at work. He is remembering his promises and preparing a deliverer for his people. Hebrews 6.12 says that we are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Like the Israelites, we are also a foreign people waiting to be delivered to our promised land. And like we said before, as we wait, we are also 
not immune to suffering. We can expect to go through trials. We can expect to go through suffering just as they did. But notice what we're called to imitate. As we wait, we're called to imitate faith and patience. So how do we imitate faith and patience? Well, we can wait with faith and patience knowing that God isn't a far-off God who does not care about his people. He is deeply personal. He cared about every single one of those mothers who lost a son. We can wait with faith and patience knowing that God remembers his promises. He remembers the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Even in the darkest hours of this nation, Lord, the Lord was working things for the good of his people. And finally, we can wait with faith and patience because we know that God delivers. That's who he is. He's a deliverer. In the midst of mass genocide, God takes the deliverer of his people and he brings them to the house of Pharaoh, to the one who is seeking to kill them. And that's where he's going to be raised. But God... Our circumstances matter. Our pain matters, just like the pain of the people in the story mattered. But just like these people, despite our circumstances, despite the circumstances around us, we can wait, with God, wait for God with faith and patience, knowing that our deliverer is coming. Let's go ahead and pray if you would bow your heads. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing the songs that we sang at the opening this morning, How Great Is Our God, with confidence, regardless of the pain or circumstances that might be present in our own lives. We thank you, Lord, for this text that teaches us so much about your character, that reminds us about how you are sovereign and in control, that even when what looks like a powerful king can logically think through circumstances that should just destroy your people, that you can orchestrate all things for their good, for their flourishing. And we take hope in that, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this time in the small groups this morning would be of benefit to these ladies, that they would enjoy the time that they have to learn from each other, to talk to each other, to dig more deeply into the homework that they spent doing this week. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, um, not just to give us knowledge, but to help us to fall more deeply with, with you and more deeply in love with your character. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.